Please listen carefully. Welcome back to another episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. We've got quite an episode for you ahead of us today with some wrap-up of Game of Thrones Season 7, looking ahead to Season 8. And then we'll dive into the Hellboy whitewashing incident that's been playing out over the past couple of days. And then we'll talk a little bit about, also in the comic book world, the Joker movies that are being pitched for the DC Universe and the kind of strange casting situation around that and how it's making fans of the DC Universe more than a little confused. And then we'll talk about uh, another controversy in the movie world right now, which is the newly announced remake of Lord of the Flies, but with an all-female cast, which is uh, pressing a few buttons with, uh, with people online. So we'll take a look at that. And then we'll close things out with some discussion of Steven Soderbergh's new film, Logan Lucky, which Jason got to see recently. I also saw it a little while ago, so we'll close things out with some review and discussion of that. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chen. How's it going? Good. Just good? <laughs> Back to my usual answer. Yeah, Back to you. Just okay. <laughs> it's super hot out here, man. Is it's it? Like it's like really cold here. We're getting like smoke, wildfire smoke from like states from california oh okay interesting a couple weeks ago we had the ones from like the interior of bc coming down to metro vancouver but now this is like the u.s revenge where their smoke is moving up north to us so it's all very post-apocalyptic um not quite but it's definitely very hot or just kind of generally like yeah hot yeah, and hazy it's kind very of hazy. not fun yeah, weather very hazy uh gross well keeping things in a sort of like um maybe a disaster kind of mood, we've got Game of Thrones, <laughs> which uh, just clued up its uh, seventh season. I know... Was it really a disaster, though? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking of, like, the big uh, uh, the big scene at the end, you know, the, the cliffhanger before the credits, you know, that... Oh, uh, okay, yes. A disaster for the free folk, yes. Yes, disaster for the free folk, maybe for all of Westeros, but um, in terms of, like, overall production quality and everything, a lot of people were saying that the that one finale episode did a lot to kind of redeem some oh, of the more yeah, irritating things sure. in the previous episodes, sure. uh, which I kind of agree with, you know, I... It, there wasn't a whole lot that was kind of surprising there, but uh, I mean, I was like, okay, cool. That's uh, that's a good setup for the uh, the final season. I would say it's not surprising because Game of Thrones is starting to become your cookie cutter fantasy epic because it's starting to become a good versus evil battle because all the politics is almost done with, right? Like the only real political player is Cersei. Pretty much. Everyone yeah. else has kind of tossed it by the side. But did you have an issue with the time travel of people, characters in this show, as a lot of people did? Part of me says yes, because I know that there is a lot of value in how uh, how much time was devoted to the literal like travel time in the show and how, you know, that's always been a big part of the books and a big part of the TV show, you know, just kind of getting right. a sense of the actual scale that we're dealing with and the fact that, hey, you know, modern tra transportation really doesn't exist here. It's going to take them weeks and weeks and weeks to get from one big important place to another big important place. Not to mention they always get sidetracked, right? Yeah. And there's always like tangents and stuff. And so, you know, the in previous seasons, it felt like we wouldn't get the really big narrative plot engine type moments until you know the classic kind of second last episode of the season mm -hmm. moment but now we're getting those at a much faster rhythm you know and as a result they're they're kind of moving people all around the map and you kind of you're getting back into more of like a it feels a bit more like a movies kind of sense of scale as opposed to a tv right. show i feel like this time travel thing is almost specific to this show because in previous seasons they spent so much time fleshing out you know, subplots and individual characters. And now that everything's coming to a head, they really need to get a move on. At the same time, I thought the editing could have been done better. When you remember that scene, that part where the Fellowship of Westeros. <laughs> the Fellowship of Westeros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they and there's this part where like they kind of like pair off as they're walking and they each of them have their own little conversations and they kind of rehash past events. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like that extended scene could have been split 
up into separate scenes interspersed throughout the episode so that you can get a better feel of the passage of time rather than having all the conversations oh, yeah, that's a good point. place all at once, which makes no sense. And also the fact that when they're stuck on that island in the middle of the lake, I thought that they should have had some night scenes or they should have shown the passage of time in some way or form so that it's not entirely implausible. Because even though the characters traveled very fast, that's partly because the episodes and the editing makes it feel like they travel very fast. Yeah, yeah. When in reality, like, these characters have probably, like, the season probably takes place over a period of, I don't know, six months or a year or something. Yeah, it would have to. You know, certainly the, like, the number of boat voyages that we see, like, with the characters south <laughs> yeah, of the wall. Yeah. Uh, or even, yeah. like... You know, even the way that that episode Beyond the Wall kind of set up the the idea of they they walk a really long way to find a white and they have all those conversations on the way. So assumedly it takes like the better part of a whole day. But then when they get in trouble, Gendry is able to run back and send a raven, you know, and this has been this has totally been hashed over by like all sorts of people online. So it's not a it's not a new thing, but I guess two simple solutions to that problem, though. First of all, if you're going out for this expedition, wouldn't you just like carry a raven with you just in case you needed to send a message really fast? Oh, yeah, I guess. Like instead of having someone to run all because they did have the like, I love how they had the red shirt wildlings who were uh, the red shirt free folk who seem to be always on hand to do something like either be the latest victim of a white or uh, to be the victim of the zombie polar bear. So like I can almost see like a a wildling whose only job it was to have like bird cages on his back. And (laughs) yeah, just carry a raven with you. Like how hard can it be? The second is like, you can't tell me that they didn't bring food with them on this trip. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you, they they would have brought lembas or something. <laughs> whatever the whatever the Westeros <laughs> you know? version of that is. Yeah. Whatever the yeah, just like beef jerky or whatever. Like bring it with you and have it show them eating it and having conversation at the same time, so you can knock down two birds with one stone. You can show the passage of time and have Jon Snow or whatever have all these conversations. And same with Benjen Stark. Like, I hate the fact that he appears out of nowhere. Why couldn't he just have joined them once they crossed the wall and have him become part of the party and then have him be the only one stay behind and save Jon Snow's ass? Yeah, I don't know. Why does he have to appear out of nowhere? That I don't get. Yeah, Benjen for the past little while has always been the show's... He's sort of been the last trump card that they had... Right. Uh, in their back pocket. Like, if they'd written themselves into a corner and there was no conceivable way for the character to get out of something on their own, they were like, oh, we still have Benjen, who is apparently, like, omniscient and knows when there's somebody in peril and just appears at the exact right yeah, time. And I, but they but they have, like, they have used that for trump card finally now. So, like, you know, he's he dies at the hand of the whites in the, in the end of that episode. So, I guess, like, no more Benjen. And I feel like Benjen would have had a really, really interesting conversation with Jon Snow. And we were totally robbed of that. Like, Game of Thrones had made a name for itself for for its, like, sex position. And that's kind of gone out the window. And now we just have characters walking and talking like it's the West Wing. (laughs) And I feel like it's such a cop-out, you know? Like, you could have so many interesting conversations this season, but instead you just chose to like speed everything up and gloss over certain things and meanwhile i don't actually think you need to see john snow or Daenerys every single episode i think it cost them a very interesting aria and sansa stark they definitely made cuts to the aria sansa thing which i think left fans feeling kind of annoyed with the way it played out because yeah. obviously it does it reaches like a like a viscerally satisfying kind of point in the finale where you know they they finally right. get rid of, of Littlefinger but apparently there was a really important scene there that had to be cut for time uh, that went a long way towards kind of giving some clarity to what exactly Arya and Sansa's relationship was like I saw one I saw one theory that suggested they that, bring it back yeah I guess so but uh, I saw one theory that suggested like Arya had this like elaborate uh, plot and Sansa was in on it and they were deliberately saying things knowing that Littlefinger was watching them, which turned out not to be the case. They were like, the way I read it was 
they were legitimately annoyed with each other and one of them wanted to kill the other and then they decided not to and flipped the tables on Littlefinger. Yeah, we were robbed of a pivotal, pivotal scene where Sansa and Arya and potentially Bran work together because we haven't had a very satisfying, I think, reunion scene between the Stark children and have them work together. Part of the reason I don't think this season was particularly strong is because they didn't allow the characters to breathe. There was no nuance in the season. And I understand why they had to speed everything up. But I hope that in the next season that they kill off whoever they need to kill off in the next in the first couple episodes. And then so they can really, really kind of flesh out everything else, the characters, and and bring everyone to an end that is fitting of their character. We've invested like 10 years in this show by by the time like it finishes. What might be a cool way for them to do it would be like maybe maybe people assume that the way season eight's going to play out is that they're going to build and build and build again until they get to a big conclusion with the Night King again in the end of the the season, but I would almost prefer them to do something different where they, maybe they get rid of the Night King closer to the middle of the season. And then they have like two or three episodes at the, uh, like the, the two or three final episodes of the entire series where they can get back into the politicking of the, you know, the, the stuff that drew people into the universe way back in the beginning. So we could kind of see them being like, okay, we've gotten rid of this existential threat, but now we're just simple humans with greedy human impulses that we have to sort out and like build a whole new kingdom around, assumedly Daenerys's rule. And then they, then all then all the politics come like flooding back in. That could be a really satisfying way to kind of close things out. And it would it would be true to the spirit of the show, I think. Here's my question then. Between Cersei, Euron, and the Night King, which of those dies first? What what do I think will happen or what would I like to happen? What do you think will happen? My gut reaction is it'll be like a very basic like Euron, Cersei, Night King, but I don't think that's the case either. I think Euron's gonna be the last to go. I think the ultimate villain is gonna be Euron Greyjoy. Oh, you think? Huh. Yeah, I think the Night King's going to die first, and then Cersei, or maybe at the same time, and then the last evil character is Euron. Because reading between the lines, I don't think you can have Euron play such a big role, but have so little screen time. Like, he's going to be the king, or he wants to. He's coming back with the Golden Company, which is apparently like the biggest army anyone has right. ever seen. And so I think it wouldn't do his character justice or his storyline any justice to have him come back with the Golden Company and then have him get killed off in the first couple episodes. Yeah, I mean, that that would make sense, but... If anything, I think Cersei dies first. But then how does, like, how does Euron take the money that he needs to pay for the golden company like isn't that a lannister deal with with the iron bank well he's gonna die after cersei right he's gonna die after cersei and he's gonna be king before that yeah but oh so you're suggesting that like he would have married cersei by that point yes oh okay Okay. so he would have been king by that yeah he so he would be the king that succeeds uh cersei well, I mean, everything I've heard about Euron's character, and we talked about this in the in the last episode, I think, like everything I've heard about Euron's character in the book suggests that he's definitely a bigger villain than he's been presented on the show so far. So, um, I guess that I guess that would make sense. Yeah, I'm with you. Like, if the final boss is the Night King, and it's a Jon Snow versus Night King kind of ordeal, I feel like it's not very Game of Thronesy. It just doesn't feel like it's a fantasy that would play out that way, even though a lot of things about this season reflects a very good versus evil type fantasy. I think the the satisfying ending or the ending that is uh, closest to what people, why people love the show is something that closes out with like the basic human characters and kind of, you know, that that concept of like, ending with the beginning and kind of circling back around and saying like, this is what the show has been about the whole time. And the supernatural stuff was kind of like the gooey center. Oh, and also 
we got to see, well, we didn't get to see the night of the laughing tree, but we did get another flashback. We did. Yeah. It was only a quick one, but yeah, they, they basically, you know, which is too bad. It should have been longer. I mean, and I guess, I guess there's still a chance for them to do it, but I don't think that it would have the same clout now that we've seen the actual wedding between Rhaegar and Lyanna. No. And I kind of hated how they handled that scene because it didn't have as much weight as it should have. Like we know John is Lyanna's son. That was a good reveal when they did it last year, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the wedding scene and the confirmation that he's a Targaryen, I feel like if you didn't watch the show, you wouldn't know that was a pivotal moment. And maybe that was just a payoff scene for fans of the show. Yeah. Season seven was very much about those payoff moments. It was kind of it was kind of coasting on those to an extent. But it looks like we're going to have to wait a while for uh, for season eight. Like it's going to be a, apparently a 16 month. 2019. Oh, my God. But what are you looking forward to it? I mean, I I just kind of what we were to, we were just talking about, essentially, like I, I would like to see a slower kind of come down from the from where we've been. Because I think that's what the core of a fantasy thing, like it's it's one thing to have a great big battle, but if you kind of rush through a denouement or a resolution in the final, I don't know, half hour of the absolute final episode, that would that would not be all that satisfying, I don't think. But any storylines in particular that you're looking forward to? I kind of like to see what the end game is for Bran, because he's suggested to have all this power, but... You know, we haven't... Well, there's the theory that he's the Night King. Oh. He's going to be the next Night King? He either is going to be the next Night King or he is the Night King. Oh, okay. But how does that work? Because, like, the Night King and, and him are, like, two separate figures. Right. Remember the episode where he travels back in time and ruins Hodor? Yep. Okay, yep. so the belief is that Bran the Builder, so his uncle, the guy who built the wall, had the same powers... And apparently went back in time to, I guess, prevent the whole war. And somehow he either wargs into the Night King or something like that. Oh. And he ends up staying there. Oh, okay. Like it's it's a fan theory or like part of the books that I don't really get. But either way, there's a theory that this is kind of like the same event that's played out over and over again. And each time they travel back in time, the consequences are different. But the result is the same kind of deal, so, something like that. That would be a that would be an interesting way to go, but I it feels a little bit too like hard sci-fi for Game of Thrones. Like it, whenever you introduce time travel, it's a headache. It's bound to alienate a big portion of the uh, the audience who you know they just don't have the patience to sort out what exactly they're they've been shown and what it means. Like that's what that's partially what hurt lost when it when it was coming to an end like there had been so many different flashbacks flash forwards uh, alternate timelines and so when they right. when they kind of got to the final season and they were like oh my god we have to actually end this thing a lot of the threads kind of got away from the writers and now nobody can really agree on what the finale episode actually means for them and and also because the rules of time travel are never strict. Exactly. Yeah. It's it, it's such a it's such a hard thing to even talk about, let alone depict with like the rules of filmmaking. So um, right. Yeah. It, I I kind of hope they don't go that direction, just because it would get so thorny, and I I think it would leave a bad taste in people's mouths. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of at the of that mind too. I know that Game of Thrones isn't into happy endings, but I do want a ending where like the evil is gone who do you have dying i have like almost everyone dying i think john and danny are gonna die i think gray worm's gonna die i think jamie and cersei are gonna die i think euron's definitely gonna die i think the hound and the mountain are both gonna die i could see Arya surviving because that's kind of built into yeah i think she'll survive i could see sansa sansa will survive survive and like be the new face of winterfell i don't know if danny will die but i could see her like maybe having a child by John and then feeling oh they definitely and then feeling will. really weird about it and then like I don't know screwing off and but it's part of their like family history like incest is very much accepted in the Targaryen family yeah but that like psychologically it's probably gonna like screw her up pretty heavily and she the one thing I don't want is when John finds out that he's a Targaryen to not brood on this thing. 
Like, <laughs> you can't brood on this for two episodes before telling Danny that you guys are related. Like, the moment you know, you should probably tell her. But, like, what if he doesn't find out before her? Like, what if it just happens that, that Danny is told before him? Either way, like, they shouldn't hesitate. Like, I don't want this, like, relationship thing, this misunderstanding to be a plot on the show because it just shouldn't be. Like, that's a, like, a Grey's Anatomy type conflict <laughs> that we just yeah. don't need. Yeah, it's, 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 it would be a bit of a soap opera kind of distraction. I know, yeah. exactly. And, like, I don't think Jon Snow can get pouty enough because I'm at the point where I'm kind of sick of seeing his sad puppy face. <laughs> where I'm just like, dude, just smile, please. Or, like, don't think life is all crap. You've got a lot of things going for you. Stop with the moodiness. Yeah, I mean, he's king in the north, and he may get to ride his own dragon in the next season. But changing streams, we, let's talk about the, the Defenders, because the show dropped, uh, what was it, like two weeks ago now on Netflix? They, you know, they did their customary upload the whole season. I've watched through the whole thing. I know... I've watched half. Yeah, you're about halfway through. So, like, based on what you've seen so far, what's your take on it? I still hate Iron Fist. I still hate him so much. That scene in the, was it the third episode, like where they finally, they're all together and he comes in and he like talks to that. Oh, the he's boredom in the scene, That was insufferable. Oh, oh I was God. like, what is wrong with you? I what know. is, how, and how do the writers conceive that dialogue? And then they think to themselves, this is not abrasive or this is not like, this is him. This is a good move for him to make. Like, I can't understand why he's such an idiot. Like, if you ask me to describe Iron Fist, like the character, other than his glowing fist, I couldn't really tell you anything else about him. Like, he's so malleable and, and fluid. He's just such a child. Like, I, I, get the, I get the whole idea that he was raised in, in, like, weird circumstances in a monastery and trained to be, like, a living weapon and all that. But none of that explains why he acts like a petulant child when he's not getting his way. Which is totally, like, unmonk-like. You know what I mean? Like, he's never calm. So I don't get it. There's a moment where, um, I don't know if you're at this episode yet, but uh, they they capture a member of the Hand and they take him back to their hideout. Oh, that's the next episode for me. Okay. Um, so this isn't, this isn't a huge spoiler, but essentially they're discussing what they should do next. Right. And they're talking about how the Hand has some sort of, like, door underneath mm-hmm. New York and that's like the big goal of the hand this whole time is to capture the Iron Fist alive and to use him as uh, a key to open this door and Danny Rand in this scene rejects this possibility from moment one he's like no 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 I'm a living weapon it's impossible why would my hand be a key and I'm like but you live in like Hellboy well, yeah but like uh, but why is he rejecting this concept out of hand it's not like uh, pun not intended uh, but like why is he why is he rejecting it like this i mean like conceivably he doesn't know everything about every possible permutation of his powers or the powers of other people like isn't it isn't there like a slight possibility that the hand knows something that he doesn't also didn't he fight a dragon yeah i don't know so see it's, like i don't get his character like he's not i can't describe his personality to you like i can with Luke Gage or Jessica Jones or even Matt Murdock. I think Matt Murdock's actually the most fleshed out character and the most interesting. But other than Iron Fist, I actually enjoy the Defenders. I think Sigourney Weaver is a great choice as a villain. Uh, I'm not with you on that. No? You don't think so? I I do like the fact that they included a bunch of Asian actors and make them speak their native language. Yes, that's good. I I do appreciate that for sure. I think the action is alright. I'm not a huge, huge fan of Elektra. No, neither am I. But overall, like, I think it's a very watchable show. I I haven't finished it because I find it a hard show to binge watch. Yeah. I watch two or three and I'm done. It's not like Daredevil where I blissed through the season in like eight hours or whatever it was. Where like I could sit down and watch it like through and through and from beginning to end without pausing. But the story itself for sure is a lot more interesting. I don't know though, like going back to uh to Sigourney Weaver as a villain though, like Why I'm still not convinced that she's a she's a very effective villain. I like her performance and like Yeah, her performance is good, yeah. It's cool that they got someone with Sigourney Weaver's like star power. All of that is fine, but for me, I'm looking for I wanted at least something to prove 
why she's the leader or why she's so feared. Mm. Okay. And the show the show doesn't really do that. And this like I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you uh where they're going with that, but for me I like you know I think back to when Wilson Fisk is is introduced in Daredevil mm-hmm. and one of the like one of the most defining things about Fisk is when he like beats a guy with a door in his car <laughs> until his head crushes in yeah. right and like for me that's like an image like you're like okay this guy means business he's not just some shadowy power broker like he's willing to get his hands dirty in a really brutal way and that kind of that defines the character but for me Sigourney Weaver in much of the defenders she's just kind of gliding in and out of uh, scenes you know, commanding a certain po- amount of respect and like proving that she's like very, very old. You know, she's mm-hmm. got that kind of that ability to cheat death like a lot of the villains in this uh, universe. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I'm like, okay, I don't, you know, okay, like, give me some proof. Fair you know? enough. Okay. Yeah. I, I accept that because for most of the show, she kind of just like orders Electra around. Yeah. And I'm like, what like even just give me like one flashback or like have her like I don't know execute a goon or something like she has she has Electra execute some goons in a in a mo- training montage but I'm like I, well I don't care about that like that was Electra doing that I definitely do like the political aspects of the hand yeah the kind of how interconnected they are with uh, global finance and all that well that and also just the the infighting between the characters of the hand the villains oh, of the, the hand the fingers yeah yeah so to show that like the villains go through the, kind of the same issues as the good guys where their plans aren't going the way they want them to and they have to figure out what their next plan is and who the leader is and yeah but for me i think a lot of the a lot of the best of there was coming from the actress who plays gal yeah the chinese lady she was good in daredevil too she was yeah and she and you know she pops up in in iron fist she's one of the main villains there but um uh, I, th- yeah, I think uh, for me a lot of a lot of that came from her because I know uh, going back to like the the Weaver thing like I know that Gao is a formidable villain because we've seen her do things in other you know we've seen her uh, act taking an active role in the crimes that the organization does. Wai Ching Ho, that's her name. Wai Ching Ho. Okay. Oh, I thought we just we should have looked her up. She deserves that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Rather than just being that elderly Chinese actress. <laughs> Yeah. The one big opportunity, like going back to Iron Fist, because I just can't get over how poorly written this character is. Do you remember in the early part of the show where they kind of hide out in that Chinese restaurant? Yep. And he shows no restraint at all whatsoever when it comes to the food. Yeah. He's just like stuffing his face and he. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like a kid. And I always thought that if he was trained in like the martial arts in this like super secret monk temple. And he has this love of food. Wouldn't it be a really interesting character development to have him be a really stiff character, like really by the book, until he gets into the restaurant and sees the food, and then he just like goes crazy? Yeah. I think yeah. it would have been really funny. That, that could have been good, yeah. Yeah, to show that obviously like he has his training, but this is also the Danny Rand that everyone remembers who's just a kid because that juxtaposition is never there. It's it's either not never there or it's never distinct enough because he's got too he's got too many uh, examples of him being childlike. You know, he he throws tantrums and he yeah, flies into rages and, you know, he's sloppy at fighting. You know, he always assumes that he's going to. He's going to win the fight because he's got the iron fist, but he doesn't actually... He gets his ass kicked more often than not. Yeah, in one scene, he's, like, quoting stuff from monks he's learned from, and the next scene, he's, like, psycho 20-year-old millennial. <laughs> he's, like, he's like every 50-something journalist's worst nightmare. He's, like, a walking think piece about millennials killing things. Or, yeah, I guess... I guess. I hate that word anyway, millennial. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of done to death. Yeah, every article that tries to like make sense of our generation, I think is just a bunch of crap. Well, I mean, and they're never written by any of us. You know, it's always written by some uh, long-term columnist at the paper who has noticed noticed something about the world that you know, those youngins are fouling up. <laughs> Did you read that Detroit Free Press piece from uh, Mitch Albion? The guy who wrote, but the seven people you meet in heaven. Anyway, he wrote this piece because his daughter or his son is going to college. And it was a column think piece about how college is different back 
in his day and today and he makes fun of all like the safe places about like no one can swear and offend people oh yeah or um all the liberal arts classes that they can take or like the shakespeare plays he doesn't they don't have to read because shakespeare was some sort of like evil person or something like that i don't know but anyway like it was a really controversial piece and i thought it was a much ado over nothing i actually thought the piece was hilarious but a lot of people obviously didn't appreciate it and they're up in arms going like you know the usual stupid thin skin shit that people get pissed off over you know so i'll also check that out then yeah yeah check it out it's it's i i hope it's still up there but it's really funny in the same realm as think pieces and uh, readers with thin skins that seems like a good way to get into this uh, hellboy whitewashing oh story because this is yes. this is really set off like a bit of a firestorm okay you you tell the story rob I, i've been keeping an eye on it naturally because i'm a huge fan of hellboy i own like i, I would say like the first two-thirds of the comics i had no idea i thought you were just a big del toro fan that's why you liked it no no it's like i i love the comics i haven't read like the final few collections that kind of close out hellboy's story that that mignola published a few years back but um, you know, I'm I'm deep into the into that universe. Like I know all the lore, and obviously the Del Toro films. Like I 100% love those. Wait, there's a clear ending to the Hellboy story. Yeah, I think like he uh, Mignola essentially said he was like, I'm going to bring the Hellboy story to an end. I'm going to make him into the Beast of the Apocalypse. How closely do the first two films with Del Toro? follow the comic book not not closely at all oh really and why do you like the comic book i love the the comics for presenting you know uh presenting a hero who's kind of like a working class kind of guy who mignola often said that he modeled a lot of the personality traits of hellboy on his father who was like a a blue collar cabinet maker right and you know he's got this world weariness and this sense of like you know, very little can hurt him. You know, mm-hmm. he gets sta- he gets stabbed through the chest multiple times. He loses <laughs> almost all of his blood to like various monsters, but he kind of he just picks himself up and cracks a one liner and moves on with his day. Yeah, cracks and, a beer, smokes his cigar, moves yeah, on. Yeah, and there and beyond that, like the artwork that Mignola does and some of the artists that he worked with in the it's later very runs, different. it's mm-hmm. different. You know, he's got these this uh, this way of like using these beautiful kind of inset images that don't advance the plot but they really set the environment uh, that the scene, that the scene is taking place in in this beautiful way you know there's little like um, stone relief faces in like old churchyards and things like that that, that there's a very cin- there's very cinematic quality and that was probably what partially what drew del toro to it when he was going to adapt it so all of this to say that I've been keeping a close eye on this, this Hellboy remake that's being directed by Neil Marshall, and they've cast David Harbour from Stranger Things as Hellboy. I actually like that. Yeah, and this movie's going to be called uh, Hellboy Rise of the Blood Queen, and I'm pretty sure the, the Blood Queen is like the villain in the piece. She's going to be played by Mia Jovovich. You know, she's a, she's a good fit for this kind of gothic horror kind of thing, so she, she ought to do a pretty, pretty solid job with that. She's finally moved on from Resident Evil, huh? Apparently, yeah. Yeah, at least until... They need to reboot. If any franchise needs rebooting, it's Resident Evil. Oh, it's being done for sure. Maybe not with Mia Jovovich, but it's gonna... Yeah, that's that's happening. But it um, can't be a zombie action flick. It needs to be a straight-up horror flick. I don't know. You, they, should, they should bring you on to, uh, <laughs> to write the piece. Um, <laughs> hey, I'll do yeah. it. But anyway, okay, back on topic. Who was Ed Skrine supposed to play? So uh, Ed Skrine was cast. Now, Ed Skrine comes from Deadpool. Like, most people would probably know him as the villain from Deadpool and um, he was cast to play a character named Captain Ben Daimo or Daimio I think it is and uh, Ben Daimio comes up he's sort of he was an addition to the the Hellboy roster kind of uh, midway through I think he came up in one of the later uh, the later collections and he's essentially a U.S. Special Forces guy who is uh, added to Hellboy's top secret Department of uh, Paranormal Research and Defense, the BPRD. Initially, it seems like he's just being added because he's just a really good military man and he'd be a good contact to have in the field. But then it's revealed that he's actually been cursed with this Amazonian jaguar spirit. <laughs> okay. So he he, he has this... Uh, I can't remember exactly what happens to activate it. It's, I don't know if it's like a monthly thing, like a werewolf or, or something, but it's essentially the same idea. Like he'll transform into this jaguar monster. And it's like a lo- jaguar PMS thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange, strange uh, variation on that. Um, but 
yeah, he'll he'll kind of lose himself in this animal form, and then Hellboy has to kind of rein him in. So Ed Skrein is obviously like he's a white English actor, and a lot of people who were familiar with the character, uh, they they were excited first of all that Ben Daimio is going to be in this movie at all because he was always I, I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't call him like a top tier secondary character in the universe like he's he's definitely one of the the less well known ones. So they were going to put him in there, but he's supposed to be Japanese American. So when when they cast Ed Skrein, people were like, "Oh, well, here comes Hollywood just picking up, you know, Ed Skrein's careers on the rise." So here he comes, going to take this role, another another uh, uh, person of color role is being taken by a white actor. And then to Ed Skrein's credit, I would say he decided that he was going to step down from the role, and he wrote what I thought was a very articulate letter and posted on Twitter, essentially saying that, you know, he recognizes the issue with people of color and certainly Asian Americans having trouble finding roles in these big blockbusters. And for him to kind of press on in the role was doing a disservice to the character. And it was it wasn't helping the overall situation with uh, with the industry. Right. Okay. Yeah. So props to Ed Skrein, because I did read the letter and it's very well thought out. I don't think the issue is about Ed Skrein. It's more about the production choosing to cast him. Like naturally he was like as a working guy who needs a job, you know, he. Yeah. Well, he didn't even know, right? Yeah, exactly. Like he wasn't familiar with the comic. So, uh, you know, he was offered the role and he screen tested for it and they chose him and then he was going to go ahead and shoot it. But then, you know, everyone found out. So yeah, the the fault was probably with the producers, and now of course they've written a statement to say that like it was never their intention, blah blah blah. I think where the firestorm really got kicked up was people saying that it was basically political correctness at its worst form in the industry. Like an actor who was chosen for aesthetic reasons, like uh, evident, like the filmmakers obviously picked him for a reason, and they should have the freedom to cast whoever they want. And I don't know, it was it was a kind of a tortured you know argument that didn't have a lot of awareness of what was really happening with people of color in the industry and the trouble of finding roles. So it was, yeah. And so Ed, Ed Skrein tried his best to kind of clear it up, but then it, it kind of ballooned into this political correctness argument where there is no winners. Right, right. I don't blame Ed Skrein for any of this. I think this issue is not about him at all. I think it's about equality, obviously, but at the same time, if you're going to be up in arms about a white person taking a an Asian role, then what about the black people or people of color or Asian people who take white roles? Like, would the argument be the same if you're all about equality? Yeah. And that's the that's kind of the weird wrinkle in this whole thing is that in this movie, Hellboy Rise of the Blood Queen, I think it's the female lead is Alice Monaghan is the character's name. And in the comics, she's presented as being a redheaded Irish girl who Hellboy saves in an earlier adventure. And now uh-huh. in this film adaptation, we're going to see, we're going to encounter her as like a 20 something, but she's being played by a black actress in the film. Right. Right. So now people are like, you know, that, that just kind of feeds the whole thing because you've got actually a counter example of a person of color taking a role from the comics that was presented as white. And people are like, well, does that cancel it out then? Or what's like, where do we stand with all this? Yeah, the issue with this is like, yes, the minorities have always been underrepresented in Hollywood. But on the other, the flip side of the coin is like, at what point do you say sorry? Like, at what point is like an apology not enough? You know what I mean? Like for Iron Fist, going back to him again, I thought Finn Jones was a terrible choice to play Iron Fist. Yeah, because he had been presented as being Asian American in the comics, if I remember correctly. Actually, no, I think he was white in the comics. Oh, was he? Yeah, but at the same, same time, like if they had cast an Asian person to play Danny Rand, I would have no problems about it. But I think some people would. Mm, yeah. But I don't think those same people would speak out because it, it makes them sound racist. Yeah, yeah, essentially. So like, yeah, you're right. There's like a no-win situation here. I'm of the mind that I don't care what color skin the actor is. I just want a good film with good acting. Yeah, yeah. I'm minority, so I do get offended by certain films. Like, remember, uh, what was it? Who's it that played the Japanese dude? 
in breakfast was it breakfast at tiffany's oh that was mickey rooney mickey rooney i almost said mickey rourke yeah. i was like no i was like yeah so that's <laughs> that stuff is offensive as hell Oh, yeah, that I was mean, like a, that was a flat out racist caricature yeah. that, you know, if it were made today, the film would. Well, I don't think it would even make. No, release. no, it wouldn't have been released at all. Um, but I just don't know where you draw the line. Yeah, it's one of those really hard judgment calls to make. That's my biggest issue. Where do you draw the line? Like, at what point does a minority actor playing a white person role make it? okay and what what point does a white person playing a minority role make it not okay the popular argument is that they can't find minority actors who are good but <laughs> to me you're just not looking hard enough yeah or you're like like the, the guys you sign from or the guys and girls you sign from asia are huge stars in asia but they're not stars because they're good actors some of them are stars because they're former models or singers yeah yeah like, I remember watching The Green Hornet with Seth Rogen, and they cast Jay Cho as Kato. Yep. And Jay Cho, he's not an actor by trade, he's a musician. And I remember hearing him get cast, and I, I said to myself, like, really? Like, you couldn't find anyone else better? You couldn't find... Like a proper martial yeah, artist? Yeah, you couldn't find anyone in the U.S. who could who didn't have to learn the lines in a foreign language and make it sound awkward when he says them. Yeah. yeah. And you couldn't really find anyone else that could have better chemistry with Seth Rogen. Like, I find that so hard to believe. That's my main gripe. I don't care if you cast a minority actor in a white role or a white person in a minority role. You have to question, too, like, when does the discussion about the casting or the final decision happen? Like, it's one thing for a bunch of Asian Americans to come in for auditions and to make it to a short list and maybe the filmmaker really likes them but then especially in the case of like the bigger budget ones where there's so much more riding on it they take it to the studio boss and then the studio boss is like well no we can't go with that person that you like because it's not going to pull in as much money okay i i do i do take it back i do care but i don't think there was the same sort of outcry when idris elba was cast in dark tower no that's true i do care in the sense that i think a lot of good minority actors may not be first choice for a lot of good films like john cho i think is a really good actor who doesn't get a lot of good roles yeah because the people who write movies write movies with white actors in mind because white actors or actors in Hollywood are predominantly white. Yeah, or the big stars. I, I think it's a systemic problem that, that isn't just like the casting process. But it's it's such a like a difficult issue. Like there's so many sides to it. I just I like props to Ed Skrine for doing it and I hope he finds other work soon. Oh yeah. I think I, I don't think Ed Skrine will have any trouble. I mean his his career's on the rise and if anything this will kind of this will put his name in more people's heads for being yep. uh, for being a guy with a position. Yep. Yeah. Props to him for kind of negotiating this thing and kind of and coming out of it probably seeming like the uh, the cleanest. Actually, he's the only one that comes out looking like a yeah like a hero. Yeah. So that's that's pretty great. But also in the world of casting and in the kind of comic book world, we we have to talk a little bit about uh, the the Joker movies plural. All right. It's plural. It's plural. Yep. You you would not be alone in being confused by this situation because I, I think what happened first was DC came out and they said, hey, we're working on a Joker origin film that is going to be produced by Martin Scorsese, probably going to borrow quite a bit from The Killing Joke, which is probably the sen seminal Batman comic that gets into joker's backstory i don't know if they specifically name checked the killing joke itself but most people out there think to themselves oh well you know if there's going to be a comic that they're going to draw from it'll be that so people people were like weirded out by that to start but like where where did you stand when you hear, heard about that okay first of all it's a terrible idea to make a joker movie <laughs> yeah because you're kind of you're missing the kind of basic conflict of the whole thing yeah second of all the fact that it's not jared leto even though I despise Jerry Leto's performance as the Joker, makes no sense to me either. Yeah. So this is a spinoff, but also a standalone, but also a franchise. Um, my second issue with, like, the Joker is he's a very, very hard character to do. I'm of the mind that the killing joke 
cannot be adapted into a feature film because it is just far too grotesque. Yeah, it would be like, it would be, to do it right, it would be a hard R kind of project that would be hard to sell to mainstream audiences. It'd be a very difficult film to do, in my opinion, because I think the, the source material is just too dark. Yeah. And I don't think you can stray away from the source material or change anything. Yeah. Because the source material is known for being like a critical point in the Batman comic history, both in terms of what happens in the story and the sort of reaction it got afterwards. So if anything, like the I would say if they if they borrowed from Killing Joke at all, it would just be the the like the barest kind of outline of the fact that like maybe the guy who becomes the Joker used to be a stand up comic and that career was failing and then he he has that kind of classic really bad day where he's looped into a a robbery that goes wrong and then he falls into the vat of chemicals and blames batman Mm -hmm. for his transformation and all that i think that would Mm -hmm. that would probably be the the limit of it in terms of uh source material i can't believe this is an actual idea that like went through how i don't know how many stages of meetings and and whatnot and well it seems like they have a they're kind of uh uh, they're a bit star dazzled right now they're like oh we're getting the guy from the hangover to direct and we're gonna get marty to be the producer and it's gonna be great wait todd phillips is directing yeah what has he done since the hangover i don't know but i think he did he he had at least one movie in between but yeah this is his next project so there's there's so many competing things on the go here like the hangover two and three were like two of the worst sequels i've ever seen if he's not working with a really A-list script, then it's going to be pretty terrible. And you know that, you know, being DC, they have a bad habit of, like, completely changing the thing and reshoots if they if it gets bad audience test scores. So it could be a complete nightmare. And adding on top of it all is the fact that they're still... It's not like they're firing Jared Leto. Like, Jared Leto is going to be back in Suicide Squad 2, and he's going to appear in a Joker and Harley Quinn spinoff film that retraces more of the origins of their romance and acts as like a a domestic abuse narrative essentially like this sounds like a nightmare yeah so not only so like they're they're gonna have two actors playing the joker at the same time which is going to be all kinds of confusing for casual viewers who you know probably rightfully so assume that when a person is chosen to play a big role like this, it's only going to be one person at a time. I really, I really don't know why they're going this way when what the DC universe really needs is some stability and like a guiding kind of through line to just kind of let's get it going. You know, let's let, let's stop miring ourselves in weird backroom stuff. And don't you think DC is kind of like going in this like too quickly? Like, shouldn't they wait to see how Justice League does? You would think. Yeah. I get the hurry. I know they want to make money and all sorts of stuff. I just don't understand why they couldn't think of something better. <laughs> and they're also setting themselves up for a world of hurt, apparently, uh, because the, the I think it's the, the first solo hero film that we're going to see after Justice League is apparently is going to be the Flash movie, and it's going to be drawing from Flashpoint, which is a comic arc that, by its very nature, includes all kinds of time travel and confusing rewriting of of plot lines. And Mm -hmm. it's one of those comics that has completely divided the fan base because it sets things up one way and then completely tears them apart and splits things off into alternate universes. So it's, you know, it's it's another recipe for confusion and weird story letting. That's kind of like what X-Men Apocalypse was to me. Or sorry, not X-Men Apocalypse. Days of Future Past. Like it was a very entertaining comic book movie, but it also like just opened up a whole can of worms and allows the studios to just be like, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that timeline doesn't count. Here we go. New one. I mean, if you were to try to pull like the whole audience who saw the, the the X-Men movies and try to get a sense of like how effective do you think this was, I don't know what kind of results you would get. Like how deeply people care about this. Is it, you know, is it just the fans who get really riled up about this or, you know, are people legitimately confused? I don't know. I hope it never gets made just like the Lord of the Flies remake that they're doing with an all-female cast. Oh yes, good transition. Yeah, this uh, have have you been have you been tracking this since the the news broke a day or two ago? 
I've been tracking it so much as like I saw the headline read kind of like the main body article and clicked X as fast as I could. Yeah, you were like this. This is a this is uh, aberration. Yeah, this is stupid. Yeah. I don't want to learn anymore. I hope it never gets made. I loved the book as a kid. I thought the black and white movie was quite good. I just don't see why it's necessary. Kind of like why how I didn't see Ghostbusters with an all female cast was necessary. Yeah. Well, this kind of gets back to I think what you said um, many episodes ago. Like it's it's firmly in the territory of pandering where they're saying like yes here's the thing that you're familiar with we're not going to write something original or in keeping with the kind of conflicts that girls would experience we're just going to take a male story and flip the gender on it and wipe our hands of it and call it a day yeah that's so stupid man and i think people have very rightly pointed out like you do a deep reading of the novel and you see that a lot of what drives the story is rooted in like that kind of male tendency to aggression you know that biological thing that yes guys are maybe more likely to go for like a a physical aggression as a solution to a problem whereas women may be more likely to uh, to do like the emotional version of that sure will would we would we even get like two splintering factions on a desert island where they you know would that even happen or would you know it uh it doesn't seem like a recipe for well i guess it'd be like an r-rated version of mean girls but on an island yeah all right yeah there's there's been a few people memeing about that online yeah but i i don't understand why it has to be lord of the flies i mean name recognition is probably the the most logical reason, like, but are we gonna have are we gonna have like fifty years down the road a film franchise about Harriet Potter <laughs> and like and I don't know like Rebecca Weasley and I don't know freaking like Harold Granger <laughs> or something like that you know like this is so yeah, stupid like, just, like you just... honestly can't come up with something any and better. surely I mean surely there are other works of classic literature that have a predominantly female base of characters that would make for a equally as interesting adaptation. And I don't feel like this kind of stuff empowers females. I don't know. I just don't feel like it does because I, when you want something that's like uniquely your own. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't help either that the thing is being written by a couple of guys, which, you know, a lot of people yeah, don't like. Yeah, a recipe for disaster, too. You can already kind of cast your mind forward to some of the, the possible things that we might see. Like, are they going to, like, age up the characters just enough to make them, like, um, hitting puberty so that they can have a few scantily clad scenes in there to really titillate the young boys in the audience? Like... <laughs> That would be the worst idea. Like, ever. but it could happen. It could totally <laughs> happen. Might as well just be Baywatch. Because we're dealing with, again, we're dealing with a major studio who's doing this. This isn't some like indie production where they were decided to be all like uh, reverse progressive or something. This is Warner Brothers we're dealing with. Right. So fair, fair. the studio head could very easily kind of take a look at it and be like, hmm, needs a little bit more sex. <laughs> In that voice, especially. Yeah. So, I, I mean, like, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing it if if we hadn't seen so many examples of it in the past. And, right. Okay. In, fair point. In other productions, you know, but yeah, it it's a, it's pretty much it's a walking nightmare right now. But it's uh, I mean it's Warner Brothers. Would they would they really turn away and not make it at this point? Like it's kind of a foregone conclusion if they've hired some guys. If the backlash is like strong enough, if there's enough, I honestly think they'll scrap the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I honestly think that public perception. Is such a real thing these days that movies are so afraid of pissing people off that they're willing to be super politically correct and just say, you know what, sorry guys, we're just not going to do this film. Because I think the consequences are too great and too significant to ignore now. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, but it, it totally depends on who's... Because social media is such like a huge thing now, right? True, but it, it totally depends, I think, on the creators. Like we look at the HBO confederacy show like the guys from game of thrones are doing that and they are too like they they're kind of the auteurs of tv right now and they've kind of said to themselves you know no there's artistic value in this show we're going to press forward and make this no matter how many accusations of racism we get i'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on that one actually to be honest i'm not against it myself i mean i'd, I'd have to see something in it before i'd uh, before i'd be willing to make any advanced judgments but but just taking that as a counterexample to like, is Warner Brothers the kind of company that, you know, being a larger corporation, are they going to bow to the criticism 
before like a smaller production by like a a cable channel that has its its core user base you know Mm -hmm. i i think i think they should bow and i think they will bow i just don't understand how this is a good idea at all i think based on the premise of the film it's going to lose money no matter what you do with it no matter who you cast in it and if warner brothers can't see that then we really have a much bigger problem in the industry than than we realize like you you honestly can't be that tone deaf did we not learn anything from the female ghost brushes? granted i haven't seen it and you know like maybe it's good maybe it's not i don't care i just thought it was an unnecessary film much like this one but do have we not learned anything like no i I'm, i don't think lessons are that easily learned because the what a lot of people say is you you're never going to truly dissuade a uh, production company from doing something unless you don't go to see it and unfortunately conflicts like these have a way of like you know self-perpetuating because people are like oh i know that movie i'm just gonna go check it out for kicks but that's a very real concern right now i just i don't understand how you don't see it that's troubling though but maybe on like a sunnier note uh we could talk about logan lucky because i think both of us really like that which is a movie that i think we needed but apparently the studios are like ah nope sorry can't do this kind of stuff too often yeah well and and that's the thing because i think um this is a movie that pretty much stands up as an example of like one filmmaker who got fed up with what the industry was doing and was looking around at the environment that breeds female lord of the flies remakes and breeds confusing character casting and stuff and he kind of said no i'm going to take my toys and I'm going to leave for a while and I'm going to make a TV show that's totally mine. And when I come back to movies, I'm going to make something that plays to all my strengths and allows actors to have a lot of fun and people can just, you know, lose themselves in. It was a very fun movie. I don't think it was perfect. I definitely enjoyed it. I ended up giving it like three stars out of four or four out of five or whatever system you want to use. What didn't you like about it? The first thing that came to my mind was the pacing. I didn't like the pacing yeah, I think uh, I think we were we were trading texts uh, after you saw it, and both of us both of us kind of agreed on the idea that it could have been snappier. Like maybe if it shed fifteen minutes of runtime, or or just cut out like stuff like Seth MacFarlane. Yeah, he was he was not a who I thought character. was like so out of just like out of place. He just it feels like he didn't belong at all. It was almost like Seth MacFarlane's character was the product of like him auditioning for another role and then Soderbergh was like <laughs> was like oh well we can't really use you for any of the roles we've written but like let's find something for you in here maybe i mean maybe he has a really convincing southern accent but i again like i don't feel like his character really added much to the plot like it did but at the same time i just feel like because all he really existed to do was be a bit of a commentary on like the rich financiers of the stock car world and then you know he has a bit of a he has a bit of a role in the the way things on unravel once the heist has been completed right and even then i feel like you could explain without him you know having been in in the final investigation right what did you make of the ending with hillary swank like did you interpret that as her basically like going undercover and trying to finally prove that the logans did it yeah that's totally what she does and i thought I was when I first saw the ending, I was kind of like, "Oh, this sucks." He didn't get away with it, but at the same time, it made so much more sense to have her in it because the movie is called Logan Lucky. Yeah, and it's about these this Logan family that's had notoriously bad luck throughout their entire lives. Every time something ha- good happens, they take two steps back because of something, and I thought that was very a very poignant scene to have her work undercover in the final scene because it's juxtaposed with them partying and drinking in the bar and having a good time so it's very fitting yeah it was kind of like a it was a reminder that it's a kind of classic hollywood thing of reminding you that crime doesn't pay and that there's going to be a comeuppance for people that break the law which used to be a requirement in movies but is now completely optional it just makes sense you see you see them enjoying the spoils of their heist and you know i don't know i would it's probably not going to happen, but I would love to see a sequel where like they were on the run again and <laughs> or they're trying to pull off. It's and- not it's going to lose this movie's losing money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to lose money, isn't it? Like you it's 29 million budget, 
twenty million marketing. No, I don't think they spent twenty on marketing, did they? That's what it said. Estimated twenty million. Oh, okay. And it's grossed what sixteen, seventeen million so far. Has it opened in any English-speaking territories outside the U.S. and Canada yet? I mean, not that it's going to make a lot in Australia and the U.K., but yeah, how is it going to say? Like, I don't, I still don't think it's going to have that much of an impact on its bottom line. But again, like this is the type of movie that Hollywood should focus on. And it's too bad it didn't do well with the box office because this is just more reason for Hollywood bigwigs to shy away from films like this. Exactly. Yeah. Because they like, you know, it's it's a it's a fresh story. And then Soderbergh, you know, as I was talking about in the uh, the last episode, he came at the marketing with a different strategy compared to what you'd normally do for movies of this size and budget. He distributed it himself. Exactly. But like his media buy for ads and trailers was way, way less than what you'd normally spend for a movie of this size. Like on a 40 million picture or a 30 million picture, you'd often spend about 40 million and have a major studio distribute it. And you'd see a lot more, a lot more trailers, a lot more TV spots. So, you know, when people were initially talking about that strategy, it was kind of suggested, like, if this works, this could change the business. But maybe, maybe it didn't work. Like, maybe, maybe you need that kind of big studio push with like a lot of trailers and TV spots just to get it in front of as many eyeballs as possible and get them out to the theater. I had heard that they had spent pretty much all of their marketing budget in like the two weeks leading up to the film and nothing before that. Right. And so they were because they couldn't compete and it made more sense do this like really big two week media blitz and hope that word of mouth gets it going. It is a good film. If you get a chance to see it, I think people should. I feel bad for Soderbergh and his two next projects, I think are going to be made for TV, aren't they? I mean, it almost seems like Soderbergh would be a better fit for like the Netflixes of the world or the Amazons of the world where you have a distribution system already in place. Yeah, you don't totally. have to worry about competing with the other uh, marquee films that are coming out on a given weekend. What's happened is that like that sort of like mid budget movie has become has moved to TV. So in theaters, you either get like uh, like the big blockbusters or you just get like the indie film that somehow made it to your local theater, you yeah. know? And like Amazon and Netflix can definitely afford it. Like they spent 90 million on the new Will Smith, David Ayer thing. What's that one? It's called Bright. It, uh, it's come, comes out in like dis- early December, I think. And I have not heard of this. What is this? Okay, well first let's play a clip. <laughs> That grants wishes. That's whatever you want. You want to be taller or shorter? You want $10 million? You're not stealing that one. You gotta get out of this neighborhood. They're gonna kill you, then me. And that's when the stupid shit's gonna start. And from that clip, you will you'll probably realize that this is a story about. Will Smith playing a cop in a kind of... in Playing basketball in West Philadelphia? No. no. Raised? <laughs> uh, he plays a cop in sort of a alternate universe version of Earth where the uh, humans and fantasy fairy creatures coexist like separate races. And he's paired with a orc partner to be in a, riding around in a patrol car with him. The orc is played by Kyle Edgerton wearing a whole bunch of prosthetic makeup. And essentially, there's a plot involving a missing magic wand that has like all the power of a nuclear weapon and a bunch of gangs who all want it. And it's supposed to be a a very not very well disguised commentary on race relations in the U.S. Yeah, it cost because of the effects involved, it cost 90 million to make. And Netflix fronted the cash and they're going to have a exclusive Will Smith movie that will only be on Netflix um, in the next couple of months. Although, to be fair, like a movie like that, 90 million, that doesn't seem like a lot these days, eh? And with Netflix, it feels like the advertising is kind of like built in. Exactly, yeah, because they can they can do those, like, depending on how you watch Netflix, like, oftentimes there's a big takeover block when you first log in that kind of shows you some yeah. marquee title that's, that's coming up in the near future. Yeah. And that's kind of a, that's a great built-in way to draw awareness to it without having to like they they still buy billboards and they play trailers and stuff and everything but it doesn't seem to have the same um 
the same size and scale as like a Hollywood production. Right. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see if that works for them because people are already kind of making fun of the concept and it kind of felt like a a weird thing for Will Smith to want to work on. Like maybe he just really likes working with David Ayer after Suicide Squad. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what comes to that. It could be a it could be a very weird December uh, thing to experience in competition with Star Wars and all of those fluffy porgs. Right. <laughs> Um, I will say one thing about Logan Lucky, and it's that, like, I've been a huge Channing Tatum fan for a while now. I think he's a really underrated actor, and I thought he was really good. The other one's Riley Keough, who I'm also a big fan of. And she did a TV series called The Girlfriend Experience, where she plays a very, like, tough female character, and that was Steven Soderbergh. And she's now been in quite a few of his stuff. I think she was even in Magic Mike at one point in like a really minor role. I could be totally wrong. But yeah, she was really good. Daniel Craig was quite good. The Okay, my one big gripe about, one of my other gripes about Logan Lucky was that it's a redneck Ocean's Eleven. And I think that's a really good way to describe it. But the, the, the pieces don't fall in place as well as it does in Ocean's Eleven. The classic heist movie resolution where you see how they, they actually pulled it off. Yeah, it's either like poorly thought out or it happens too quick. Yeah, I almost think it there was too much dead air between the end of the heist and the actual revelation. It almost seems like Soderbergh is going in a direction where he's suggesting that... A little bit. He's suggesting that Channing Tatum's character did give up all the money and that you know, he hung all of his partners out to dry Mm -hmm. and it kind of goes down that road for surprisingly long. And then it's like, oh no, here's how it all actually happens. So he tries to kind of pull the rug out from the audience as well as the characters in the movie. And the first part, I don't think worked as well as it could have. But all that being said, if you haven't seen Logan Lucky, we both highly recommend it. It's a great way to kind of close out an otherwise lackluster late summer movie season. My review's up. Yeah, and your and uh, Jason's review is up on uh, kinetoscope.ca if you want to take a look at that. So yeah, that uh, that about wraps things up. Head on over to kinetoscope.ca uh, for that review and for some of our upcoming coverage of the Toronto International Film Festival, which I'll be attending and seeing way too many movies in too short a period of time <laughs> definitely not healthy i saw your schedule you dork <laughs> <laughs> but until then uh, my name is robert snow in toronto and my name is jason chen from vancouver thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time <laughs>